Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. So I'm Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, and today we're going to have like a little conversation with Professor Paul Welton, with the Sean Chuan Chair in Global Public Health at Tulane University and also the president-elect of the World Hypertension League. Oh, it's a huge pleasure to have you here with us, and thank you so much for giving us your time to answer our week questions on mentorship and training. Thank you, Guto. It's a wonderful pleasure to be with you and with others who may be listening to this podcast. So, oh, just to get things started, can you just tell us a little bit of like, how did you get involved with the area of hypertension research and how that led to the World Hypertension League? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Ireland, went to medical school there, ended up uh, doing an internship at Johns Hopkins. It seemed like a good opportunity. I, I said I would come for a year and, you know, I came, they were wonderful, uh, very supportive and said, you should stay another year, another year, another year, another year. And eventually I came on faculty and trained in nephrology. And uh, obviously blood pressure is pretty central to nephrology. And then I started doing some work in the population with the chair and some of the other faculty. And eventually the chair came to me after about a decade and said, you know, you seem pretty organized and you seem to like this. And if you're going to create a career around this, you need to train properly. You need to go back and take graduate training in prevention epidemiology. So I went back to London to the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, got a graduate degree there, and then got a doctorate uh, from the National University of Ireland and University College Cork. And so my career uh, has always been a mix of clinical interests and population interests and how those two interact and uh, bringing schools of medicine and public health together and applying the science base of population health to trying to understand clinical issues and to prevent them, and of course, if not completely preventable to treat them. So that's the background. And when I started, mentorship was very loose. Um, when I started as an nephrology fellow, uh, the division director, who was a lovely, smart, capable person, said, there's the laboratory. Uh, you go in, you move around, meet different people, see what you like, and that's what we'll focus on. <laughs> so... <laughs> You couldn't do that today. Uh, we used to write grants and he would have a team in the night before the grant submission. And we would be up all night. We would have worked, of course, for a couple of weeks preparing and he would just dismiss everything we had done and he would dictate. Now, those days are, <laughs> it's a completely different world, but it was a small world and you could go to the meetings and your mentor would introduce you to all the greats in your area. So it was a lovely, but very different uh, environment to what we have today. So that, that's, that's sort of my background. I spent uh, 26 years at Hopkins. I got a lot of opportunity there for leadership roles, uh, 
general clinical research center leadership. And then I started something called the World Center for Prevention, Epidemiology and Clinical Research that really brought people in medicine and uh, public health disciplines together. And that was a lot of fun. And then I came to Tulane. I did a series of deanships, medicine, public health, and then I was chancellor. And then I went to Chicago as a president CEO. And then it was time for me to come back to my roots of academic uh, pursuits. And I came back to Tulane. And uh, there's a strong group here in epidemiology. So I came back and, and that's where I've been for the last seven years. So I had a wonderful career and I've benefited a tremendous amount from mentorship, even though it was different when I started than it has to be today. And, and Paul, how, how all of that led you to the World Hypertension League? So um, obviously, as I got interested in prevention and working in the community, people introduced me to global health. And my first experience when I was at Hopkins was to go to India and work in India. And that's an eye opener. I think it, it's great. We try to do it for all of our medical students to get them overseas to just see different systems. Uh, how do people operate with very limited resources? And uh, I think you learn a lot. So <clears throat> I started there and then I worked quite a bit around the world, uh, worked extensively in Egypt, I worked extensively in South America, particularly in Brazil. Uh, and I, I now work a lot in, uh, for many years in Asia, particularly in Taiwan and China. So uh, obviously contacts in Europe as well. So that, that makes you interested in global health and um, you know, obviously the International Society of Hypertension is very interested in the global aspects of blood pressure. Uh, it, it tends generally that ISH is more oriented to the academic world. Um, the World Hypertension League, on the other hand, is, is more oriented to linking with WHO and uh, some of the foundations doing things in, in the field. So right now is, I think, the most exciting time ever in my career because we've done things and they sort of splutter. They do very well while the money is there. And then once you leave, uh, things tend to go back to, uh, to normal, a sort of regression to the mean. <laughs> and now for, and it was very hard to get WHO seriously interested in chronic disease for many years. And now, of course, it's become obvious through um, the World Bank and many others, and WHO has embraced chronic disease very seriously. And so if, if you're not working with WHO, it's really hard to be successful because ministries of health in most countries are going to look to WHO. Their formulary is going to be based on what's on the WHO formulary. So uh, we work a lot with WHO, they have something called the HEARTS program, you may be familiar with it. And then there are several other groups, Resolve to Save Lives is a really important group with funding from the Gates Foundation, Blumberg and others. And so there are very serious efforts going on now on the ground, structured to implement what works well in developed countries. There's no difference really between 
the developed and the underdeveloped or less developed economically countries other than the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So um, that brought me into World Hypertension League and um, it's a great group of people. Uh, and we have very close ties obviously with International Society of Hypertension. We all work together because the problem is a common problem that we've all got to try to solve. Great, thank you, Paul. Uh, so, <clears throat> so as you mentioned, like you participate like in uh, uh, quite a few committees and some of them are from uh, international societies or like professional societies. And uh, we see now that these things are important to advance your career because you get like to talk to different uh, scientists or you get to, get to know, to, to create your network of, uh, of scientists that can help in the, in the future. So, but this is also very time consuming. So I guess like there is a lot of like work, volunteer, uh, volunteering work that you need to put towards uh, those um, activities. So how, like in your career progress, if you look back your career progress, how the participation in professional societies uh, helped you uh, to move forward and achieve what you wanted. Helped me a lot uh, because you get to see the best people and the best science. And, you know, what you find out, and I often tell this to younger colleagues, is people are very accommodating. I think people in, in our field and other fields are extraordinarily helpful. Most of them, they, they want to be supportive. If you have the opportunity to present somewhere and there are people who are very knowledgeable in that area, it's always a good idea. Send them an email and say, I'm gonna be presenting on Thursday at whatever. And I'd really, if you have the time, I'd really love to have your input or I'm gonna be doing a poster, I'd love to have your input. And I think, all of us will try to make time to go by and meet that person and encourage them. Uh, so going to meetings is a wonderful way to see top level science and at the same time to meet role models uh, and really people are expert in the field. You have to choose your meetings uh, appropriately, and, and it depends what the goal is. If, if your goal in life is, uh, if you're a clinician, the goal is clinical practice, and there are certain meetings that are very, very good for that. And if your goal in life is research, you have to pick those meetings. And there'll be some mix of general meetings. And when I started, all the great meetings were general meetings. But nowadays, I think we tend to be more focused on specialty. So in the area of blood pressure, we do go to the general meetings and that's important, but we also really need to focus most attention on the areas of blood pressure um, interest. And that would be ISH, obviously in the US, um, the American Heart Association with a hypertension council and they do a very good meeting. American College of Cardiology also does good meetings. They're very uh, oriented to clinical practice. Uh, so in the US, it would be ACC and AHA predominantly. Although if you're a nephrologist and you're interested in blood pressure, obviously nephrology meetings, et cetera. Uh, and in Europe, um, 
purely European Society of Hypertension. They're great meetings. I mean, you're, you're going to see the best people in Europe at those meetings. They go every year. <laughs> and I, and I, I agree with you. Like I, I like the fact that you mentioned that uh, that thing of dropping an email to people that may be in your field. So like, hey, I'm presenting a poster, like come uh, see me and discuss with me. It, it's, it's nice to hear that because I think like a lot of like trainees now, they're sort of like intimidated or afraid of doing that, but they forget that like, you know, uh, senior researchers like you and many others are humans and they would love to come and see the poster and be interested. And that's a way for you to even like score a mentor for your future career, right? And, you know, they'll either come or they won't come. If they don't come, it's because they're not interested or they just have a conflict uh, in, uh, in commitment. Um, <clears throat> but you'll never know if you don't try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A good sign always of somebody who's going to be successful is they're, they're persistent. I didn't know a darn thing about research when I got to the U.S. And one thing I had going for me as a renal fellow, they said, who would like to join uh, a research project? You'd have to come in at four or 4.30 in the morning to draw bloods. My hand was always up first. <laughs> so I, uh, I got to meet great people. Uh, I didn't really understand everything they were doing, but I was enthusiastic. I was willing to learn and they were willing to uh, teach me. So <laughs> no, but that's, I, that's... I think, you know, uh, for those of us who are mentoring, we spot the really good trainees. Not that they're brash or they're um, un, un, inappropriate and unpleasant, but the ones who are enthusiastic and willing to learn and open to uh, new ideas and, and want to work. That's great. So switching to the mentoring side of things for uh, our interview here, if you need to define mentorship in one word, what word would be? Excellence. Perfect. And We're talking about research, I think I would start with excellence and integrity. Those, you know, it's hard to separate those two. Uh, and finding a good mentor uh, slash mentor team is critically important, particularly in today's age, uh, all around the world. So, for instance, in the US, you have a very limited amount of time to be successful. If you're in research, the first several years on faculty are going to be critical for the possibility of developing an independent research career. It doesn't mean if you don't have grants within three to five years, you'll never become a researcher, but it becomes much less likely. So you have to use that very carefully. And you really need to have a lot of structure and principal a mentor, but we typically use a mentorship team. If somebody is in, say, blood pressure and they're doing something around cardiovascular, we will have somebody from the Division of Cardiovascular in the Heart Institute, uh, a researcher, of course, uh, if it's research oriented. We would have a methodologist many times. So we'll have somebody who, we'll get the team. You, you need to look at what the person's interests are and what the particular project, main project is. We'll put together a team, but there has to be one person who is the central person. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know what you're looking for, if it's research, you're looking for somebody who is 
really successful and currently successful, not successful 20 years ago, but currently successful, knows the system, knows where a grant goes when it goes into the review, knows how papers are evaluated when they go in for a review. And uh, sorry about that. Um, so you need the right person and you need somebody with integrity and you need somebody who's empathetic. And you may not be able to get the perfect mentor, but you have to do the best you can do. It's more challenging if you're outside, say, the US or Europe or other areas where there's a, a strong infrastructure um, and you have to try to find the best persons and, and it can be more challenging mm -hmm. uh, because the cultural system in many countries is quite different. One of the things we're doing now um, with the Lancet Commission and the the Centers for Disease Control in the US and the World Hypertension League is we're going through a process where people apply to lead papers and we'll come down to say 12 to 20 per year. And then we'll assign mentors to work with them to really try to help them to get that paper at a level where it can be acceptable for an international journal. And that's a lot of work. It's a lot of labor of love. And we realize um, that many of our colleagues in countries that have less infrastructure have a really difficult time. And they don't, English isn't their usual day-to-day -day language. So they need a lot of help and they need support. So that's one of the things we're trying to do uh, at WHL. But um, I think the, the, the core of mentorship doesn't change. Mm -hmm. and, and that sounds like an amazing uh, opportunity for, for, for many people, the, the program that you just mentioned. So oh, if somebody, after listening to what, what you just said, it still comes to you and say like, ah, but I don't know if mentoring is, is going to be important to me. What else would you tell them to change their mind? I would say it's key. And it's key. If, uh, now, if your goal is research, and let's say you're in um, a country where there is research funding, and that's the focus for what do you want to do in your life? And, and you should decide early in your career, what do you want to do in your life? And, you know, who cares what other people think? It's what you want to do. If you want to be in public service, you should be in public service. If you want to work with the drug companies, you should do it. If you want to do clinical, uh, predominantly analytical research, you should do that. So you choose the areas and, and try to be as excellent as you can be in those areas and choose the mentors who can help you in those areas. If it's in research, it is very competitive and not everyone succeeds, unfortunately. Doesn't mean they're bad people, but it is very competitive. So you want to give yourself the best chance possible. And that means really having a mentor. I think it's very challenging to be successful without a mentor. Mm. Having a mentor team and really having structure. So we, we have for the, for the, particularly the young faculty we bring on, we have a very structured approach to research. They, they early on, even before they come on faculty, they have to write a, 
proposal for us as to what they intend to do. And then we will get them going, obviously, with papers first. And uh, you need to get a portfolio of high quality papers where you are first author. Uh, it's nice to be other authors, but you know, when we're really looking to see who is providing the leadership and who's successful, we're looking at first authorship early in career and then later in career uh, senior authorship. Okay. A little different for um, bench science. Uh, I'm thinking now more about what I do applied sciences. Um, <clears throat> we want to develop that portfolio, get them going quickly, and we want them to write a lot of papers. Even as a fellow, we would require a lot of papers or expect a lot of papers. And, very, you know, the top journals. And then we want them to go in with the grants. Uh, we'll get them on as co-investigators on existing grants. And then we will get them into training grants and we're lucky to have training grants. So we will get them into the initial level of training grant that will get them to a certain level. And then if they're ready, we will get them into the next level, the sort of top level where the expectation is they're going to write uh, an independent research grant that is a fairly major one. We call it in the US an R01, an R01 or equivalent. And it's our expectation in those sorts of settings that within two years, they put in their first grant, within three years, they're successful. No, no, it doesn't always occur, but certainly within three years, you have an excellent idea whether somebody has a good shot at being successful or not. And it's important if somebody is not likely to be successful, that they understand that uh, and you help them to make other plans. And not everyone is going to be, and it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of great people, lovely people, smart, capable, um, and they went on to do other things, and that's fine. But and I think that we're a strong mentor who's got integrity, who's not there to use you, but to support you, facilitate you, encourage you, and who is willing to spend the time. Mm -hmm. and, and then a lot of structure. So we have very structured approaches. We have uh, a lot of a lot of contacts, day-to-day -day contacts, but then even though we're doing day-to-day -day contacts, we have formal meetings with the principal mentor, uh, usually one or two. And then the entire mentorship team will meet uh, early on every three months and later on every six months. And we have, a, we have a very close understanding of what somebody is doing. And obviously trainees need varying degrees of uh, input. Many of our trainees are really excellent and all you need to do is say you're doing the right thing. That's about the right amount of papers. And they get a lot of papers under their belt. Then you say, well, pick the ones that are really most important. And you take the lead on that and have some of your trainees uh, pick up the other ones. Um, make, sure they're, make sure they're putting their grants in, in areas that have the potential for support. Um, Again, typically in, in the US, at least, the way the money comes for competitive research is through the NIH. And, mm -hmm. and that comes through institutes. And whether we like it or not, you know, there's a heart, lung, and blood 
there's kidney, there's diabetes, etc. And so methodology is a tough one because it goes across many of those institutes. And to be successful in the review process, you need to demonstrate that you really understand that area very well. So you need area expertise. You often need to show you understand physiology rather well, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so methodologists is a little more difficult. Uh, we do have a general science institute and we have some other opportunities, but generally um, I would say to somebody, you know, pick blood pressure, diabetes, kidney disease, whatever it is. And really become known in that area, publish in that area, uh, understand it very well, and that gives you a much better chance. And pick the mentor in that area who is excellent, who is uh, a lot of integrity, who wants to mentor, and who's capable. Um, it gives you the best chance of success. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And Paul, like when in your career did you realize that you needed a mentor? I think early on, you know, when I started, it was much looser. Uh, and my division director was just a lovely person, very smart, very capable, um, lovely person, but it was very loose. You know, as I said, I was sort of go in and find what you want to do. Sure. <laughs> but he says that just doesn't work. But I did get advice from him, and he was the one who came to me after several years and said, if you're going to pursue this area, I think it's a good area for you, but you need additional expertise. You need to go back and do some graduate training. So that was my earliest experience of a mentor. I had another faculty member in the division of nephrology who was an expert in blood pressure. So I worked with him, but you know, it was a time where I knew almost as much as he did. We went to meetings together. We got together a large cadre of renal artery stenosis patients. We did a lot of interesting sort of physiological studies in uh, donors uh, looking at metabolism. So we did. I did a lot of that, and I learned from both of them. Uh, and then when I came back in epidemiology, the chair of epidemiology was for me a terrific role model and mentor in that area. And uh, he was a tremendous support. Um, and I could most definitely go to him for advice. And then later on, I had the first faculty member that I recruited who subsequently became a dean at Hopkins. I could trust him. We were good friends. I could expose my inner weaknesses to him without fear that he would um, you know, tell anybody else. And, and that's something we have to come clean with somebody at some stage and say, this is my failing. <laughs> this is my area of weakness. How do I address it? And it's yeah. very hard to do that. Um, most of us were very competitive. We have a lot of pride and that's a challenge. But so he was a terrific person on the ground. We worked a lot together that I could trust him. He also came to me and I could give him advice. So I had many people who helped me over time, but um, mentorship was always valuable. Uh, and at the same time, 
whenever it happens, many people would come and say, well, that's a bad idea because, you know, to get promoted, you should be doing this, that, and the other. And I always said, I appreciate that advice, but I like what I'm doing and I'm going to do it the best I can do it and let the chips fall where they will. If I get promoted, great. If I don't, uh, I'm still happy doing what I'm doing. So there's a certain balance between taking advice and at the same time, uh, and being open to it, and at the same time having in your heart what you want to do and the passion that you want to put into it. And, and of course, we, we see trainees that are variable. I've seen some trainees who are really hard-headed and you give them advice and they just, they don't take it. And you say, I really, the team needs to see your grant at least three weeks before you put it in. And you get it, you know, two nights before, one night before. And you tell them, this is not a good area um, because it's really unlikely you're going to get sustainable funding in this area and they ignore you. So you see that. And on the other hand, you don't want a trainee to just do what you want to do. You want them to do what they're passionate about. It's a, it's a balance, right? So, yes. so you're talking like you just mentioned, like, uh, you know, when you, uh, you give advice to trainees, um, like in the grants and applications. So if you think about your mentoring style, like, how would you define your mentoring style? Well, I think it's probably like everything else in life. I remember that I was a trainee once and uh, <clears throat> I want to try to help people as best as I can do it within the time constraints that I have. I, I don't have a whole day for everybody, but I, I want to be empathetic. I want to be supportive. I want to give honest advice um, straight up. I'm not interested in their promoting my career. That's, un, that's uh, absolutely unimportant to me and my career is fine. But I do want to try to assist them to be the best that they can be. So I think that's sort of at the core of um, mentorship. And then I strongly believe in this day and age of in structure and the importance of structure and the having them recognize that there is only a limited time to demonstrate that you're capable because eventually reviewers are going to look and say, well, this person has been out in fellowship for whatever, five years. It's very unlikely that they're going to be capable and um, time goes by very quickly. So try to be empathetic, try to have structure, try to ensure that people have passion for what they're doing and that, and that you give them advice if you think that is an area that is likely to lead to a successful career or not. Right. And what, what traits or what, what characteristics you think the mentee should have to be able to really fully get the, the best from a mentorship relationship? Well, I think uh, taking advice, not being a robot, but, but listening. If somebody says, we need to see your grants, your grant proposals two to three weeks before they go in, listen to it. Don't end up saying, well, I got to get this grant perfect. I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And I know the night before it's supposed to go in, I think it's right, I'll send it out to the team. 
So listening, um, obviously work. You, you, you get out of something what you put into it. You have to work hard and uh, integrity. And uh, you know, many times somebody thinks you're stupid because you're nice, you're a rollover. And I've seen that so many times with my great mentors who happen to be very lovely people. When I was in London, uh, Jeff Rose was a wonderful cardiologist and clinical epidemiologist, and he was a mentor to me and there were some others. Jeff was the loveliest person ever. And people used to think, well, this guy's a rollover because you know, he's such a nice guy. He will never be mad. And he never was mad. But it's like me and other people. We do spot when people are taking advantage of you. Um, so don't try to take advantage of your mentor. Do the best you can do. Um, so I think integrity, hard work, being open to input and passion. Those are key elements uh, for success. And, and then having structure to get from where you are to where you want to be. It's, it's sort of, you have to have a plan for everything in life uh, that's important to you. And that plan is where am I now? Where do I want to be? And how do I get from A to B? And it's a progression. You start, you start with the basics and then you work up to the highest level. Mm -hmm. and, and how, like, what advice to give to, to the trainees? Like how to, uh, let's say when you go to an interview, and especially now during COVID, uh, a lot of interview for positions, let's say for a postdoc, it's online. So what kind of advice do you tell the trainee should look for to be able to identify, oh, this is the environment that's going to make me grow, that's going to help me to move forward? Well, I think for training, um, you want to pick an environment where there's infrastructure where there are people who do it well. And I say, again, it's not all about research. If, if it's clinical, go to a clinical environment where they're really good. And if you have a particular area in clinical practice that you think you want to go into, you, you may want to choose an institution around those parameters. If it's research, Again, it depends, you know, what is it you're wanting to do? If it's clinical epidemiology, take places where you have people who do that, do it very well, and who are currently very successful. And it's a lot easier to train in those environments where there's a lot of infrastructure and a lot of expertise than outside the environment. It, it doesn't mean that somebody who's training outside the environment can't be successful, but it's a much harder task to, to do that. So you wanna pick the right environment. You can certainly talk to former trainees, what was it like to be in that program? And, uh, you know, they're gonna be, some of them will say, oh, it was wonderful, wonderful. But generally speaking, they're gonna be, if you engage them properly, they're gonna be pretty direct and honest with you. And you'll find out, this person is a bear to work with. They really want you to do their grunt work. They, they want to, you know, have you do their research area. This person is very good to work with. So you'll find out a lot through the network. Um, and you sort of get a sense from the interview as well. And the interviewer is also looking, I mean, we're looking, we have very few numbers of slots 
and we have to select. And unfortunately, you have a lot of good people from whom you're only going to be able to select a few. And it is very competitive. And so we're looking to see what, what is it about this person that is special? What are the credentials? And, and they'll vary at different levels of choice. If it's you know, choosing somebody to get into the initial training programs, at the fellowship or postdoctoral level. Uh, and then if it's at the faculty level, there are different things we're looking for, but clearly as you get to the higher level, say we're looking for faculty, uh, we're gonna be expecting a lot more. We're gonna be expecting a lot of good publications, early submissions of grants and, and so on. At the entry level, we're looking for somebody who maybe we're certainly gonna look for training. So we would expect they would have a master's if they wanna get into our doctoral program. And what have they done during that master's? What courses have they taken? Have they taken the quantitative sciences and have they done well? Have they published? Uh, who have they been working with? So on the other end, you wanna look at people that you would like to work with, that you think would be a good addition to your team you don't want somebody who's arrogant. You don't want somebody who's gonna be a pain in the neck to work with. Mm -hmm. um, you do want somebody who is energetic, who is enthusiastic and, and really has ambition in the right way. So it's sort of a two-way street and you have to try to match up. And, and if you don't mind me asking like the other way around now. So let's say if you are a, a mid-career, no, like an early career that just started your group. So got a, a position, let's say, uh, in a good university and you're starting your lab and you want to let you hire a postdoc or like somebody that's going to help you to start your research. What advice do you give to that PI, the young new PI to make his or her environment attractive to, uh, to, to good people and not lose the good people to the more senior, more uh, established labs? Well, I, I think, again, it's uh, a matter of getting the word out to trainees that you're interested in having trainees and that you are willing to put the time and the effort in to support trainees to be successful. And you're looking to build a team, whether they're in your team uh, or whether they're being developed so they'll go back to their home environment. And you build up, you know, I, I'm the luckiest person around. <laughs> I've got a team all over the world. And it's so lovely to, to go back to countries to do research and to meet people who train with me or have known over the years. So <clears throat> it doesn't mean that everyone who trains with you is going to be in your um, institution or in your laboratory. It does mean that you've got people that will be all over the world. So picking somebody who is enthusiastic, keen, you want to pick somebody who is successful currently in the area that you want to be successful in. You want the right fit. Um, you want a good role model. You want somebody who is, let's say, hardworking, empathetic, has integrity, and is there to support you rather than to support themselves. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And <clears throat> Paul, so when you're talking about like you, you went to your first conferences and 
you know, you suggest like write emails for people to come and see your poster and all of that. So when you are in a conference, like meeting someone like a senior researcher that you see as a role model, uh, it can be quite intimidating. So sometimes like people are afraid to, to go and talk to them and even like, you know, uh, like you feel sometimes it's stupid. Like I don't want to say any stupid things. That's what people usually say. So what would you say to people like that? Like to say like, how, how do you overcome the fear of talking to someone that you, uh, that you are intimidated? Well, I knew when I was younger, I would say a lot of stupid things. <laughs> so the good thing is that those of us who have gone on and had some measure of success, I mean, personal success, um, we're, we're, we're not that bad. I mean, we've been trainees ourselves. We, we know what it's like. And it, it varies by culture. Um, uh, always... For me, I was growing up when I grew up in Ireland. Americans were quite amazing to me because they would they were never intimidated. They would just take on the world. They would say things, and I knew when they would come to Ireland or England, <laughs> but they would say things that were normal in the U.S. but culturally not the norm in Ireland or the U.K. I think for students coming from other cultures, and I don't want to pick a culture, but I will say from Asia in general. They, they tend to have a different background and they're very uncomfortable. They're not used to speaking out. And I certainly, when I'm teaching, I encourage interaction. So when I'm teaching, of course, even online, I try to encourage, and put that in quotes, everyone to have their screen on. I want them to interact. I, I don't want to see you know, the blank screen with a, a name written on it. <clears throat> and as I'm going through my slides, I will ask them, well, what do you make out of it? So I want to, and part of that is is just the, um, the knowledge, but a bigger part of that is to encourage them to really feel comfortable to interact, interact appropriately, uh, interact. And don't, don't worry, I mean, yeah. It's unlikely somebody's going to bite your head off. If they do, that's probably a person you don't want to work with. I mean, if that's a, if you encounter somebody who is really unpleasant, that's a pretty that's a sign to me that they've got other characteristics that they're not going to be a good mentor. They mm -hmm. are going to look for people to work for them, but they're unlikely to be there to mentor you to be successful as you can be. And you always win, right? Because if it's a, a negative interaction, at least as you said, you know, oh, that's not for me then. And it's a sure win because you, you get to know that. And if yeah. you don't try, you would always be, oh, maybe. It's always like a maybe and not nothing sure uh, for you. That's, yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so now like, I just wanted to switch a little bit like to diversity and inclusion. Uh, aspect of like our uh, conversation today. So there is like a big talk now about diversity and inclusion, especially like in many different areas, but especially in research. And what do you see as the biggest issue around diversity and inclusion? Well, obviously it's very important. We, we want diversity. And uh, I've been lucky in my life to have had a very 
diverse group of trainees and uh, faculty as I was recruiting. <clears throat> and I always recruited people because I thought they were going to be the best. But really, to me, excellence is always at the center of any recruitment at any level. Um, and of course, I really did want to have a diverse team. That's important. And there are particular challenges from people with diverse backgrounds. Um, you have to understand that and empathize. But at the same time, it really enriches your team if you have diversity. And um, I think you just, you just have to make sure you're really trying your very best as a mentor to do outreach, to make people feel comfortable that they're, they're not going to be consciously or unconsciously finding hostility as they perceive it. Um, and, you know, I, we all have some experiences in our life. I certainly had experiences in my life where there were things that were uncomfortable for me. And people would look at you and say, you're a white male. That's really surprising. Well, growing up in Ireland, with, uh, our history is a complicated relationship with, um, with the UK. We had certain things that people from another culture might say something. And, you know, for me, it was very offensive. They wouldn't recognize that it was offensive at all. They would think it was maybe very funny. So I think many of us are quite sensitive to this, even though we might be seen to have been born in areas with a lot of privilege. And so I think in empathy, um, wanting to help somebody to be successful, wanting to be ensured that the environment is good and really recognizing problems quickly and dealing with them. If there's a problem in your group, you have to deal with that very quickly. And, and that's something I've always done in my life. And I dealt with it and said, this cannot go on and met with people and said to them very, very quickly, you know, either we correct this and you are happy and you fit in here and you do a good job and all the rest of it, or we work to find you another location to work. So you have to recognize the problems and be open to them um, and, and make sure that everyone is being treated fairly. The person who is thought to be uh, doing something on inappropriate, uh, as well as the person who feels that they have been offended. Mm -hmm. And, and I think when people come in and there's a good environment, and then the word gets out, you know, this is a good environment to work in. This is an honest and decent person to work with. And then you'll get the very best people applying to your program. And you mentioned like you were originally from Ireland, right? Yes. So, and then you went to, uh, and then you left Ireland, so that you go to the States. Like how? A, well, Hopkins takes one slot out of their training program in medicine every year for foreign graduates. And I had the opportunity to go. I had no real intent to go to the US. I had the opportunity, I thought, well, kind of silly not to go. I should go for a year. And then I got there, and, and the way the system works in the US, which I didn't understand, was they they make decisions very early on and within a couple of months they come to me and say, you know, 
uh, it's crazy to go back this year. You've been accepted into the next level. You should stay for another year. And then it was another year. Another year. And so how was? I just lucky. Uh, I was with a, a lot of really nice people who liked me and supported me and encouraged me and gave me guidance. I just was lucky in life. And, and Paul, how was the, um, the switch of the, the cultures? Like, how was for you, like, going from Ireland to the States? Because it, it, it was a little it bit of a terrible. shock, right? Like, completely changing countries. It was awful. I, because <laughs> even though I spoke English uh, quite, you know, obviously I spoke English day to day and I spoke Irish, but I spoke English. But my English, they couldn't understand. And I couldn't understand their English. So it was it was terrible. And I, you know, the, the drugs had different names. And I felt so stupid. And they were very nice. They put me in the ER first, which was the easiest rotation. And so they, they were very empathetic and supportive. And the one thing I knew is I thought I would like to quit and go back to Ireland. But I knew if I do this, they'll never take an Irish person again. So, I can't do that. So I stuck it out. And then, you know, over time, you understand what's going on. They understand you. And uh, again, I think everyone was very supportive, very empathetic. Mm. And I was just lucky. Nice, yeah. nice people. And, and Paul, now, like, <clears throat> we talk about a lot about, like, equality. So, like, you know, the ratio between men and women in uh, departments or conferences because like women does like seem to uh, to not be uh, as um, the, um, recognized as much as, as men uh, used to be in the past. So do you have any advice, advice for women in hypertension research? Like how, what they can do to make sure, like to, to like what kind of advice, advice you have to empower them and make sure that we, we continue to have strong women in research? Right. Well, I would say, you know, it started with the premise that we're more alike than we're different. So all of us are more alike and the structures for success and training are, are pretty much the same, no matter whether you're a woman or you're African-American or, you know, whatever your background is, your lower socioeconomic. Uh, and on the other hand, there are special and understandable challenges. Uh, for women, many times there are issues around family, um, and certainly when you're younger women, issues around pregnancy and, and young children, and that's a huge, I mean, that, that's a huge labor of love. And just come back from being with my son and his wife and their grandchildren, and that's why I broke my shoulder. And they're so active, and you need to put in so much time. So you, I think as a mentor, one has to recognize that, understand it, be empathetic. Um, I think all institutions, as far as I know, um, certainly all institutions in the US will provide additional time. Uh, if people have to take a year out for childbirth and, and wearing and so on. Um, it's not necessarily an even field, but it is the way it is. And we have to do the best we can. and. Uh, Obviously, we have a faculty here that is mixed and we have a training program that is mixed. And some of our very best faculty are women, some of our very best faculty are African-Americans. 
some of our very best faculty have come from cultures where research wasn't uh, a common practice. So they've overcome a lot of barriers. And we just have to try to help those individuals to overcome the barriers and to understand the barriers and to be supportive. And I think institutions try, um, individuals try. If they don't, again, it's not a good institution. It's not a good individual. You, you want to move on somewhat quickly to somebody else. But I have found in my life that it's really enriched our programs and enriched my training and, and certainly helps you with your research. People are, if you're doing research in certain areas, individuals will be better accepted and, and be able to do a better job if they uh, relate to that particular population of that culture. And just to, to finalize our conversation here, so now uh, focusing on COVID and the, the whole pandemic, um, so there is a lot of like uh, fear among the ECRs, like in terms of like contracts and how COVID is impacting their, uh, their career development. So what would you say to those people, like in order like to, uh, what do you think that our community, like scientific community can do to support these junior researchers and ensure that during this, when this pandemic's over, they're not um, as professionally hurt as they are at the moment? Well, certainly COVID-19 has been uh, an extraordinary experience. Uh, we, have, we have a certain amount of understanding of that because we get hurricanes. You know, each place in the world gets different things. So one of the things we get here in the Gulf of Mexico is hurricanes. And we, we usually prepare for them. Uh, we're rather good at that. We, evacuate in a couple of days we come back and we rebuild. Hurricane Katrina for us was an unusual uh, um, hurricane and it, I won't go into the details of what happened but it was very disruptive and so it was an incredibly disruptive experience and we just had to deal with it and we came out of it very successfully um, with a lot of support again from, from others. So our experience there is Use your time wisely. It is important when you're home, if you're home, to be working with your mentor, to be writing papers, writing grants. Don't waste your time. Um, you do want to take that time and use it wisely. Perhaps you need additional expertise in an area and you can do virtual training. I find with the courses that I'm doing now, they're twice or three times as large as they were when I was doing them face-to-face. -face. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that, but you want to use your time as wisely as you can. It's never going to be quite the same. You never quite replace face-to-face -face, uh, training and relationships. And institutions generally recognize that. My own institution has certainly extended the time period for evaluation or um, tenure and those sorts of things. So institutions tend to be, um, they tend to be responsive, not perhaps perfectly, but on the other hand, the trainee has to grasp the situation and take advantage of it. And that's the very first thing I said when COVID-19 came up with our trainees. 
Um, and I set it after Katrina. Was, after Katrina, what I did is uh, I said, look guys, I, I can't get you back into your labs. I can't get you back doing population research because the population isn't there. But, um, you know, we're gonna support your salaries. And one thing I know you can do is you will write a lot of papers from home and you will write a lot of grants. And our grant support went up in the two years after Katrina uh, substantially over what it had been. And part of that was empathy on the part of the funders. That they understood our challenges and they tried to support us. So good, I hope that's been um, helpful. I, I need to run to another meeting. Yeah. But it's been a wonderful pleasure. Yeah, no, I, I speak too much, I'm sorry. No, no, it was, was perfect. Like, uh, thank you very much for like, I uh, spent time with us. And I think you said like lots of like good advice that people will take uh, to heart and be successful. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.